Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we're devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today's Tuesday, October 24th. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here. I'm also a proud member of the City Club. So look for a second, you guys. We're um, at a point where it's probably not an exaggeration to say that 100% of us here in this room today are worried about the state of the world. We're worried about the prospects for peace, and we're worried about the outlook for democracy. If I've made a mistake in claiming that 100% of us are worried about those things, somebody tell me now. Okay. Our worries and concerns are as much domestic as they are global. Wars in Ukraine and Israel, both of which could tip into regional conflicts. Bellicose aggression threatens Taiwan and South Korea. And if our Congress is an indicator of the strength of the idea of democracy, it's hard to have faith. At moments like this, though, you want sound analysis. You want to hear from people of experience. You want clarity of vision. And that's why I'm so glad we have Heather Conley, president of the German Marshall Fund, here with us today. At its core, the German Marshall Fund strives to champion democratic values and the transatlantic alliance by strengthening civil society developing a new generation of leaders to tackle global challenges, and forging bold and innovative policy ideas, one of which we're going to hear about in depth today. You should know, too, that Cleveland has a strong, decades-long connection to the German Marshall Fund. Firstly, the idea for the Marshall Plan was hatched here in Cleveland, Ohio. True fact, you can Google it. If Google doesn't come up with it, talk to Joe afterwards. Also, Clevelanders and our city have long been a part of GMF's Marshall Memorial Fellowship Program, which invites European and American civic leaders on life-changing travel fellowships, exposing them to cities and leaders in those cities with the goal of strengthening our shared commitments to democracy and our shared commitments to the transatlantic relationship. I say our, by the way, because I was a Marshall Memorial Fellow in 2019, and it did change my life. Yes, yes. Thank you. I also want to recognize the Marshall Memorial Fellows. There are a number of alum in the audience, but also some Europeans who are traveling and are here with us today. Please join me in welcoming all of them. So Heather Conley is GMF's sixth president. She spent her career working in international relations and government affairs. She spent 12 years at the Center for Strategic and International Studies as the Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic. Before that, she was the Executive Director of the Office of the Chairman of the Board at the American National Red Cross, and also the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. We'll first hear some opening remarks from Heather Conley, and then uh, move into a conversation moderated by our good friend Joe Simperman, President of Global Cleveland. And then we'll get to the portion, the Q&A portion. And if you have a question for Heather Conley, you can text it to 330-541-5794, or you can uh, work your way to the microphone during that time, and we'll work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Heather Conley. Well, thank you very, very much, Dan. That was an excellent introduction. You stole a little of my thunder and my, that's okay, that's okay. But I want to tell you, as president of the German Marshall Fund, Cleveland is home. Thank you for welcoming us home. It is fantastic to be here. And the weather is great, and this is an incredible new building. And Dan told me the furniture just arrived yesterday. Thank you. You've made the home really nice for us. Thank you so very much. So exactly as it's described, today we meet under some very dark clouds. And externally, 
I think it's just important that we take a moment to step back and understand we are, if my calculation is correct, in day 608 of the largest land war in Europe since the Second World War. We stand on the cusp, potentially, of regional conflict breaking out across the Middle East, and tensions are now rising very quickly in the Indo-Pacific. These are probably the most uh, significant and serious times that we've experienced in six or seven decades. And at the same time, internally, we are deeply polarized. We are so polarized, we've now become paralyzed and are unable to rise to meet the challenges that I've just described externally. And through our fear, our fear of this uncertain world, our fear of not knowing what future lies ahead, that fear can be transformed into isolationism. Make it go away. Pull up those drawbridges. I don't want to engage in this. So those are the dark and stormy clouds. But let's talk about some light. Light is City Club. Light is Global Cleveland. Light is the Cleveland Foundation. Light, I will always hope and aspire, is the German Marshall Fund of the United States. So I'm going to talk about GMF. For those of you who don't know us, I'm going to be very brief. And then I'm going to talk about how we can prepare and fly through these dark and stormy clouds and talk about that through a modern Marshall Plan for Ukraine. A word about the German Marshall Fund of the United States. We were born as an act of gratitude 51 years ago, and it happened at the 25th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. Then German Chancellor Willy Brandt in 1972 decided to retrace the steps of George C. Marshall when he, in 19, on June 5th of 1947, went to Harvard to deliver an incredibly short but powerful speech that announced the European Recovery Program. So Chancellor Brandt retraced those steps 25 years later and created the German Marshall Fund as an act of gratitude for the German government wanted to thank the American people for rebuilding them. What a power that is to come to every issue through an act of gratitude. So 51 years later, the German Marshall Fund, headquartered in Washington, D.C., has seven offices in Europe, in Paris, Brussels, Berlin, Warsaw, Bucharest, Belgrade, and Ankara. We're the only U.S. organization that has that reach, and why? Because our mission is to make sure that for future generations, the strength of the transatlantic relationship is always the most powerful and put to work in good times, but most importantly, when times are the most challenging. We give grants to civil society organizations across the Western Balkans, Central Europe, Ukraine, around the Black Sea and Belarus. Why? Because we're helping organizations build democracy from the bottom up to fight for strong institutions, accountability, to make sure all voices are heard and lifted up. That's what a democracy does. We also act a little bit like a think tank, and you're like, okay, what's a think tank? What do you do in Washington again? I know, explaining what I did to my children was the hardest thing I ever did for quite a few years. Mommy goes on television and she travels. Ah, okay, what does a think tank do? Uh, a think tank is, uh, the, the, the part that we do is we bring the people that make decisions, whether they're in government, the private sector, civil society, thought leaders, we bring them around a table and we talk about tough issues and we focus on solutions. We, we often critique our government, what they're doing, what we think is well or not well. We provide new policy ideas for policymakers that have run out of gas and are doing the same thing over and over again and they're expecting different results. We give them new ideas, but we put thoughtful people together to get solutions. And then, looking at this incredible table of alumni and the folks that are here now on our current Marshall Memorial Fellows, we 
are building the next generation of transatlantic leaders because you are stewarding this relationship. But the relationship will be yours. It will focus on climate. It will focus on uh, resolving the tensions that we see in our uh, international community. It will be working on local solutions because at the end of the day, we, we affirm democracy through solving problems. So that's what the German Marshall Fund does each and every day, 170 wonderful members working transatlantically to work on those solutions. So, okay, that's a little bit of GMF. So let's talk about how do we navigate these looming storm clouds. I'm going to argue what we need to do is return, I think, back to a, a simple formula. I called it the three C's. We need to attack our international problems with clarity, with confidence, and with conviction. And that's been missing, I would argue, transatlantically for a little while, clarity. So for the United States, clarity is about, as we look at the international scene, what is in US national security interest. I often hear, when people talk about providing assistance to Ukraine, I hear some senior US policymakers saying, where's the gratitude? Where's the gratitude? This has nothing to do about gratitude. This is in America's self-interest, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So clarity, it has to be in our interest. That is what we do. Confidence, that we have the tools, the means, the partners to accomplish what we must accomplish, what's in our interest. Confidence, not I'm not sure it's going to work, maybe confidence. And the third, conviction. And this is what I think has been lacking, in part because I think we've lacked a little bit of self-confidence about when we've gone in to major challenges. Certainly, Iraq was not a self-confident result. Afghanistan was not a self-confident result. But conviction means we achieve results and we seek victory. Because if we don't seek that victory, the stakes and, and quite frankly, the challenges will only grow. So the conviction that we must succeed. Now all of that, those three C's, is understandable if you know your history about the Marshall Plan. So I'm gonna spend a moment on the history, because a lot of people don't remember that wonderful history. And then let me share with you why I think we can pull that history forward and talk about a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. So let's backtrack back to 1947. Inflation was very high in the United States. People had served, they had done their duty for Europe. Why, why would we do anything more for Europe? It was a difficult time for the United States. We wanted to focus on building the United States after the Second World War. But what did Europe look like at that moment? Ravaged economically uh, incredibly deprived and what was happening, that hard-fought victory from the Second World War was on the cusp of being lost. Because of that economic loss, influences, communist influences were about to topple some key governments. So everything that we worked hard for would have been lost. That's an important historic aha. We won the war, we had not secured the peace. In rebuilding Europe, we could, re, we could secure that peace, not only secure that peace, but have our European allies be prosperous and secure, prosperity and security that had enormous benefits for the United States. It was not an easy sell, and I love the history here. They had to have a Marshall Plan to sell the Marshall Plan, to talk to citizens, to say, hear me out, this is why. It was tough, but you know what one of the magic formulas was? It was truly bipartisan. A Democratic president and a Republican leader in the Senate at the time said this was the right thing to do for our country and went out and convinced the American people it was the right thing. And it was probably one of the most consequential foreign policy initiatives of the 20th century. Four years later, we had 16 European allies that had economically recovered. 
Many of them had become founding members of NATO, which NATO will celebrate its 75th anniversary. So let's take those lessons and apply them to Ukraine today. Let me start with the three C's, clarity. Clarity is this is in the United States' interest to support Ukraine right now. And now is the most critical time because there are other urgent crises that require our attention. We have to keep our sense of clarity of why this is important to keep providing assistance. Because can you imagine if Ukraine was not successful? Can you imagine how much the United States is going to spend in defense spending to ensure its security from a Russia that is imperialistic and very aggressive, a Russia that is supported by Iran, by North Korea, by China. This is not just about Ukraine, it's not just about the European theater, it's about those global connections. So the clarity, this is in our in interest, the confidence that we, with our European allies, and Europe has now surpassed the United States in providing assistance to Ukraine in financial assistance. The US leads in military assistance, but Europe has eclipsed us as of July in providing that assistance. So we have our allies and partners supporting this. We have the tools. We have a great private sector who is eager, eager to embrace. They need help, more insurance. They need support from the government. But I can't begin to tell you how many US companies seen extraordinary opportunity in Ukraine's uh, IT sector, their energy sector, their agricultural sector. They see opportunity. They see that they can prosper as well as the Ukrainian economy to provide those tools to continue to support Ukrainian, the Ukrainian people as they rebuild their cities, as they look forward to a better future. And then finally, it is that conviction we have to ensure victory for Ukraine. As I said, the, the counter argument to that would be enormously costly. And I believe if Ronald Reagan were alive today and someone would tell him it's 5% of US defense spending would completely, uh, in many ways, decimate the Russian conventional forces up to, or involve up to 80%, that would be the best deal for us economically, despite obviously the extraordinary toll uh, on the Ukrainian military. This is what I mean about smart arguments with clarity, confidence, and conviction. Why a modern Marshall Plan for Ukraine, supporting the rebuilding of the Ukraine, winning the war, securing the peace, ensuring greater prosperity and security for the transatlantic relationship. That's an argument I'd make every day, all day, across this country. And I look forward to having that conversation with you right now with this guy. Thank you so much. Um, well, Heather, thank you so much for coming to Cleveland and to our four fellows who are here uh, from the EU. We're so happy that you are now Clevelanders uh, and that uh, we, are, we are part of each other's family. And to the City Club, thank you, Dan, for always making these forums possible. One of the things that you talked a little bit about um, was the uh, Ukrainian military. And you know, in the audience today, we have people from Ukraine, uh, people who fled uh, since the invasion. And there is a conversation now of hope and you spoke of the three C's. How would a region like Cleveland, which is the sixth highest in receiving Ukrainian refugees, and some would say in the top three in terms of Ukrainian diaspora, how would our community civically position itself to be of support to this? Because clearly there's a lot of interest here and a lot of support for a German Marshall Plan for rebuilding Ukraine, which immediately implies victory. Thank you. Well, first of all, Cleveland, uh, the community has been amazing in their support uh, for the people of Ukraine, providing the immediate humanitarian needs, the solidarity and support. That is exactly, that, that's the light uh, of GMF and what we do. It's people to people. It's understanding the connectivity of where the Cleveland community is directly tied to the Ukrainian community, and that we see each other as sources of strength, we see each other um, as sources of support. I, you know, as we talked about, as Dan referenced, look, we know the topic of Ukraine is deeply politically polarizing right now, 
But as I like to say, as I lift up the voices of our, our Cleveland community that's doing extraordinary work in Ukraine, that's, that's American foreign and security policy working every single day. I think the citizens of Cleveland don't understand that they are in the front lines of US foreign and security policy every day. And when we build together something important, something lasting and enduring, I don't, want a politi I don't want a politician getting in that way. I want to strengthen that. I want our political leaders to support and lift up that work. That's the great American experience, ex the, uh, the spirit, that can-do spirit. It, sometimes that can-do spirit drives uh, some of our European colleagues a little crazy. Sometimes we get a little over-optimistic. We get a little too can-do, like we can do this, and sometimes it's like, okay, maybe we're not, we, you know, we stumble a little bit. But that's exactly the spirit of we can work together, um, we can make it happen, and that we imply that we understand victory is, is essential. And once you put that policy, that optimism, we're doing it, get out of our way, get behind us, let's go. Uh -huh. I, as I said, I think that's the spirit uh, that is a spirit within Ukraine. It's certainly within the American DNA. We need policy that helps lift up make that easier and continue to support that city-to-city -city work, citizen-to-citizen, -citizen, companies getting engaged. That's, that's again, that's in our self-interest. It makes our community stronger, our businesses stronger. Uh, so it's so self-interested and it's doing the right thing. How could we not want to do that? Mm -hmm. You spoke a little bit about the clarity and the courage. Um, and you know, it's interesting in Ohio, right? We, our governor, Governor DeWine, Congress people like Max Miller, Marcy Kaptur, uh, Mayor Bibb, and uh, County Executive Ronane are all over in terms of their politics, but united in supporting Ukraine. What lesson can the rest of the country glean from the fact that, yes, we have a large Ukrainian diaspora, but clearly there's a keen understanding that Ohio and Ukraine have a lot more in common than not? So I, I think it's as simple as understanding you know what is in your interest. Mm -hmm and you know what is in the country's interest. I think sometimes our political leaders don't put the community's interests and the, and the country's interests. Sometimes it, it, in Washington, it's obviously it's extremely political town. Politics uh, force some different statements and conclusions, but uh, again, I, I have a very simple formula. It's local and it's solution-based and you're local and you're solution-based, and, you have, and it's, you have international ramifications for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I would ask, I would say, keep this bipartisanship, grow this bipartisanship, demonstrate to other leaders, regardless of political party, why it's important, why it's in our interest, be clear, be confident, and have clear convictions. And I, you know, then they have to sort of deal with that rather than us addressing right. their partisanship. Right. And when you think about, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, what's at stake in Ukraine. You know, obviously, it's a real effort um, for supporting democracy and, and, and a people's right to be free. Recently, Poland just went through yeah. uh, an am amazing election. And, you know, as we're watching, there's often this conversation among the fellows, you know, what do America and the EU have in common? And the conversation around illiberal democracy and around you know, what does that mean? And can you talk about any trend lines now with regard to Poland, even Hungary, and, and where this is going? Because it feels like we're having a battlefield conversation about this with Ukraine, but we're having a maybe more difficult information conversation about some of our other allies. Thank you, Joe. It's a, it's a fantastic question. And I just, in, at the end of September and early October, I traveled to Germany, Finland, Norway, and I ended in Warsaw, Poland. Um, 10 days before um, their historic election. I had a couple of takeaways from visiting all four countries, uh, very unique. I, Norway, I'll put a little bit of a aside for the moment. But what struck me was how much Europe is shifting to the right. And I think sometimes it doesn't even acknowledge or recognize that. And it's, and it's, you know, it's a confluence of factors. And I think we have to go back really beginning to 2008, you don't get here overnight. You slide there until you wake up and go, "Whoa, I'm in a I'm in a different place." It started obviously the 2008 financial crisis, which had very deep impact in Europe. In fact, some European countries have been extremely slow to even get back to pre-2008 economic levels. 
And then just as they were just coming out of, of the financial crisis, which obviously you know, released into a, a debt crisis for many of the uh, European peripheral countries, then they hit the Syrian conflict and uh, the, the migration crisis, of course, 2015, Ukraine, obviously the annexation of, of Crimea. Then they got hit with an, uh, a migration crisis that certainly accelerated shifting politically to the right. And then I would say on sort of on the third top of, of that, it's been this fuel of not having confidence in the future, fearing the future, fearing change, societal change, economic change. Will my children have a better life than I have? I think in Europe you also, here in the US we have a shifting demographic. In Europe it's a demographic decline that exacerbates that Will my children stay in the country? Or are they going to leave? Um, will their, my culture, my language survive if the demographic picture becomes smaller and smaller? And this just began to shift that the center now is more center-right. And, and European um, countries struggle with how to address this far-right element. It is certainly anti-US. It's anti-EU. Uh, typically is very pro-Russia, pro-China, because in fact, I think where some believe, well, democracy is failing. You see that in our public opinion polls here for young people. It's not working for me. They're not listening to me. They're not addressing my issues. And so you have very charismatic political figures that I've got a simple answer for you. This is what we're gonna do, super simple. And it feels good in a very complex world that doesn't have easy answers to it. And so, you know, I think, obviously the concern in the Pol Polish election was a huge surprise because the, the Polish government certainly using grievance and history uh, and the trauma of that history. And look, we're, we're all, we all relive our historic traumas differently culturally. And certainly this full-scale war has brought up the, the most significant cultural traumas for Central Europe, for Western Europe, and everyone suffered differently. Um, for Poland and for the, the current government, they saw an opportunity to transform Polish democratic institutions, the judicial system, transform the media to be much more of a government spokesperson. And they really, so there are free elections. They're just not fair anymore because um, parties put their finger on the scales and control the media, control the message, and in fact, the Polish government at the time held a referendum on migration at the same time as the election. It blew through campaign election funding, and they're like, this is great, it'll mobilize everybody. Everyone's afraid of, of immigration. It backfired in Poland. This was the most important election since 1989, and more people came out to vote this election, 74.4%. Why? Because I think they understood their future was at stake. Were they going to transform their democracy to a limited democracy and become more anti-Europe, um, anti-German specifically, and anti-Russia? Or were they going to choose a different path? But the fact of the matter is, for 10 years, Poland's democracy has been under great strain. Sound familiar? When democracies come under great strain and institutions become strained and tested, their resilience gets, you know, they, the bouncing back takes a little while. Um, it's very difficult. So this new government, when it's formed, Will, it will be challenging, and you have Hungary that is, um, you know, closing, illiberal. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, Germany, if you look at German political polling right now, the largest party is a center-right party, the governing party, and at 22% AfD, which is a far-right party, um, this is now shifting the country, and I, I think Germany has a lot of trauma that that's going to be frightening to them. So. What I like to tell everybody, democracy is a daily activity. We take ourselves for granted and, and we lose that, our essence. We fight for it every day, but we, and we fight for it transatlantically, and that's why it's so important that we work with organizations across Europe to help their organizations, and we're learning so much, and we're now helping American organizations. We're learning best practices, how we can how we do things differently culturally, it's fine, uh, but there's so many exciting lessons. Together, we fight for this. And as we celebrate next year, it's, it's extraordinary, NATO's 75th anniversary of which 
We are soon to welcome our 32nd member, Sweden. We hope things are moving now, thankfully, a little more quickly. We hope. What a powerful alliance that was designed to protect democracy, the democracy of our, our, of our allies. So this is a dangerous moment, but it's a moment that we know what we need to do. Now we have to go fight for it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you talk about this uh, resiliency, right? And obviously institutions like the City Club, you know, provide that kind of, of not only check and balance, but also reminder of, 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 our, of our deepest and best values. In order to engage um, the generation that will, is leading and will lead, and climate change continues to be such a key motivating factor, more so maybe than any other thing when you look at some of the polling. How do we look at things in Ukraine, like with the Kakova Dam and with the whole rebuilding of infrastructure, along the lines of the fact that there's a lot of economic development bridges that are possible transatlantically, we can also keep a mind toward climate justice and engage our next generation of leaders in a way where they may actually find these conversations interesting? Yeah, it's a great question. So let me talk about leaders first, and again, our job is to prepare the next generation to steward this amazing, critical, economically powerful transatlantic relationship. But it's going to be their agenda, their relationship, and absolutely climate, um, democracy, um, making sure that we lift all voices and we support one another, that's going to be part and parcel of their agenda, making sure that we have a diverse and equitable and an inclusive generation to bring this forward, absolutely key. And that's what our Marshall Memorial Fellows and our, our variety of our other leadership programs were absolutely designed to do. So the exciting thing about Ukraine is we're not building Ukraine back the way it was. We're gonna build it to 21st century standards, the, the most sustainable, digital, it's going to be the envy of Europe for being a modern economy. And what's so amazing about uh, Ukrainian leaders, they are hungry and are welcoming this. Come to Ukraine. They are a little less on the regulatory side than some of our other EU partners. U Ukraine can be a renewable haven. It can be a green hydrogen. We can look at that whole climate area. So there's a huge opportunity. And just a word, I think, and what GMF has been doing for many, many years, and I think it's just now the most important thing we're doing is how cities engage with cities. That's where the innovation is. That's where leaders are working together, best practices. So we have a cities program and we're just about, we're hoping, can't quite announce it yet, but I'm gonna lean into it, uh, to do an amazing partnership, a public-private partnership that works, it's a diplomacy lab, to work with American cities, European cities, and Ukrainian cities to work together particularly on climate and sustainability. So as they rebuild their cities, they are modern, they are going to use all the best technology. That's what I mean about conviction and the power of hope. Mm -hmm. And that's what the Marshall Plan was. It said tomorrow's gonna be a better day, we're gonna build it better, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And if we take counsel of naysayers, and again, that's you know what the whispers from the Kremlin, they're too corrupt. There's nothing of value there. If you listen to those whispers, you may start agreeing them. No, the power of hope is that we're gonna build something better, uh, and we're all going to be able to celebrate in that prosperity and security. Mm -hmm. We're so happy uh, that you're here, and you know we're, re we're reminded as you know other flashpoints occur across the globe, Cleveland is home to a large number of people from the Balkan communities, uh, Slovenian, Croatian, Serbian, Macedonian, um, folks coming from all over, and we know that the Balkans are beginning now to uh, have unrest. In the state that named the Dayton Accord, you know, that ended a genocide and, and what would have been um, the largest war until the invasion of Ukraine since World War II. Your perspective, uh, speaking to a community that is very familiar where Slovenia, Croatia, and Serbia are, are actually on the map. No, well, thank you for that uh, important question about the Western Balkans. And in some ways, again, out of extraordinary tragedy of the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, this has unleashed, in some ways, dislodged where I think the European Union, quite frankly, and, and the US is a bit complicit in this, we got stuck and stagnant. We did not have clarity, confidence, or conviction when it came to Western Balkans policy. Um, and the cost of that stagnation, that policy stagnation, promising them 
some EU open doors that weren't really open. Uh, and what happened was that stagnation, or we call the stableocracy, we got a little, um, as I said, some leaders in the Western Balkans learned very quickly that to parrot West, uh, US talking points, oh, that sounded great, they, they talked just, and then when the visitors left, we can go back and do what we want to do in the patriotism networks, and, and in some ways that everybody was satisfied with that until, as you said, violence has now begun uh, to break through. Um, Bosnia, the lack of progress from the Dayton Accords. It was designed to end the war, but then other reforms need to happen, and they've been, they've been stopped, and we've, they've had too much transatlantic inertia mm -hmm. to overcome them, and of course, obviously, now we, we are very dangerously on a powder keg between Serbia and Kosovo. Um, and particularly in, in northern Kosovo. So now is the time for clarity. We cannot allow these countries to remain outside. How do we move them more quickly into a closer relationship with the European Union, uh, just as we want to bring Ukraine closer to um, the European Union and support our, our EU partners in, in doing that. But we also have to have more intentional US engagement in this area. We've, we basically told ourselves, and we told Europe, you've got this, but we need to do it together. Together we are stronger. It's not just the US doing this and Europe doing that, together. And so I am hoping this, unfortunately, the danger that, uh, that poses uh, the Western Balkans, that we are able to see and do more transatlantically because in that absence, what do we see growing? Russian influence, Chinese influence, um, others that do not have our interests in heart. So again, wake up call. We have to, with our clear understanding of what US and European interests, be confident and, and have that conviction to move the needle, not just sit back and let, well, we had a summit. Okay, you know, what's next, what next? Make sure we are action oriented the whole way through. But there's some huge challenges. That's why we're working so hard right now uh, across the Western Balkans to support civil society, independent media. So everyone knows there's hope for a very different and democratic future. It's interesting because you know you spoke a little bit about the Marshall Plan, needed a Marshall Plan, and it came to Cleveland as we were talking. Uh, and Dan was sharing with us in January of 1948, and citizens like the ones who are in this room today came together with the Cleveland Council on World Affairs to basically say we may not have the intel sheets every morning or know, you know what army is moving across what um, uh, border, but there was a collective sense of something had to be better. And you mentioned a little bit earlier what I would call the cohort of chaos, specifically with Russia and Iran, and it feels like there, is, uh, there are sides that are drawn. And are you seeing that now? Is that the trend line? And who's on our side? Or whose side are we on? So we, we, you sometimes hear from analysts, political leaders, sort of the luxury of we get to choose which theater concerns us the most. We are the, you know, China is the pacing threat. That's the most concern. Everything else doesn't matter. Or you, you know, Russia, Russia now, obviously the challenge. No, no, we focus obviously on Iran, the Iran nuclear program, Middle East. And as I said, I think uh, in some ways, the international system is helping us explain this realignment that we are seeing. And we don't want this environment. This is not, I'm happy about this, I'm very sad because this is not how we wanted this to be. But what you're seeing is an emerging two-block international system. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. And the other side is the US and its allies. And I'd just like to remind folks, on that side of the ledger, the US side, that's not a lot of countries right now. We have a whole lot of countries sitting in the middle, pretty agnostic. Look, it's, I'm not, you didn't listen to me and I'm not worried about what this is. And, and some of those powers that sit in the middle go, oh wait, I can get support from the US and Europe, I can get support from Russia and China, and this is great, this is great. I, I've, worked, I've worked the system out a little bit. So increasingly, and I think uh, the Israeli government over the last, uh, 14 days has understood they were trying to work out a relationship with Vladimir Putin and some of that was uh, Syria related Russia isn't supporting Israel China isn't supporting Israel right now 
and that should be a wake-up call in some respects of what uh, understanding how this two-block system is. But I think between you look back at the Syrian conflict when Russia, Russian military was bombing hospitals, they used some of those tactics in Ukraine and bombing hospitals. Um, we see similar tactics as these theaters uh, change. We know the Iranian drones and missiles are being used in Ukraine, so this is no longer just one country and violating the territorial integrity of another. This is now becoming systemic. So what's important here is to understand that system, to hold leaders accountable for international humanitarian law, uh, war crimes, of course, and to make sure that we understand what's at stake if Ukraine is not successful, if we cannot preserve territorial integrity. That's really essential. Thank you. We're about to begin the audience question and answer with clarity, confidence, and conviction. For our you lives. I always remember those three seats. I right? did. I, I'm, I can't stop remembering there them. There we go. Um, <laughs> tink, tink, tink. Yeah. For our live stream audience, for those joining us, I'm Joe Simperman, president of Global Cleveland. We are very luckily joined today by Heather Conley, the president of the German Marshall Fund. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you would like to text a question for our speaker, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And the amazing City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please. Good afternoon. My question is, what is the European feelings for a second term of President Trump? And how the, for Ukraine as well as for Europe? Thank you. That is the question I get whenever I travel to Europe. That is the first question that I get. So obviously there is enormous concern uh, about uh, the return of the former president. Uh, and certainly over the last 24, 48 hours, suggestions that it, should the former president be reelected, that he would remove the United States from NATO. Uh, at the end of the Trump administration, he had you know, sought to withdraw U.S. forces from Germany, who, by the way, those U.S. forces serve Central Command. They serve the Middle East, uh, the medical facilities and, and things like that. Um, so absolutely, there's enormous fear because, again, I, and please forgive me, I'll always go back to a little history. The international system post-Second World War was designed to protect the United States security and prosperity. It was a self-interested design that ensured security, stability, and prosperity globally. And I would argue part of the fault lies with all of us that we got to this point where an American president threatened withdrawal from NATO. We, we own a little of that ourselves because we stopped talking about why it was in our interest, what benefit the United States got from it. We described it as getting free riders and getting ripped off and not pulling their fair share. And yes, our European allies need to do more for defense spending, but we get an enormous benefit of making sure as we are postured externally, we are protecting the United States far from our shores. It's about protecting the United States, as, as I'm speaking as an American to talk to an American audiences. And our European partners amplify and enhance our security and their security by being in NATO. Uh, just looking at, if I have this uh, right, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland. So Sweden, Finland, Finland obviously now our newest NATO member, Sweden to become, we hope soon, after Turkey and Hungary ratify. There are more F-35s outside of the United States in those four countries than in the United States. They are buying U.S. military equipment, they are highly interoperable, and we're working together. That's the power of NATO. But if we're not explaining that to American citizens, yeah, that's a ripoff. What, what benefit do I get? If you talk to the Pennsylvania National Guard, I'm from Pennsylvania, full disclosure, um, and uh, they've been working with the Lithuanian National Guard, they're on the front lines of freedom right now. 
when they're, when they're in the Ohio National Guard doing amazing work. So our citizens are doing and protecting the transatlantic relationship, but we need to lift their voices up. We need to tell community leaders why this is important, because if you don't know why, why do you care? Why do you care? We need you to care. As I said, I'll go back. I need my children to care about NATO as much as I do for them to understand why it's important for their security. If I fail to do that, that's my failure. I, we need to help. That's why this next generation conversation is more important. Are they prepared for the reelection? No. Sometimes it's easier for European leaders to talk about our election than their own. And as I said, some of the same forces that are happening within their country are, are happening in ours. I think what will happen, as we saw from, from the, 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 the Trump administration, and we're seeing this more and more, this is what makes Cleveland so important. I'm getting to the Cleveland is so important point. Because what happened was Washington, and, and they see sort of Washington's broken right now. You know, you talk to someone and you can't get things moving. Well, I'm gonna talk to the governor because I'm gonna negotiate something with the state, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm gonna negotiate, my companies may be coming to Ohio. I, I'm gonna talk to city leaders because that's where things are happening. That's where I see opportunity. So actually what's happened, and maybe this is a good thing, we'll have to see this burst of decentralization, talking to governors, state leaders, foreign ministers, the German foreign minister just spent three days in Houston and Austin, the, uh, the former Norwegian foreign minister was in Minnesota. They're getting outside of Washington. They're talking to you. They want you to know how it's important and they wanna understand what our conversation is. But you know, no one is fully pre prepared. Amer European security rests on this decision. So they, you know, sometimes they get pretty intrusive in this because they feel like I don't have a vote, but this vote actually has huge implications for me too. We're in this together, and you know, if there's a sudden change in France or in Germany in leadership, that would have big ramifications for us. So it's a really important question, but I believe, what, what can I do? I, I don't control that part, but I control education. I can tell and help people understand why NATO is so important. Next year's 75th anniversary, we all have to do our part to tell people. It's not about what the last 75 years just did. It's about what the next 75 years are gonna do for your children, your grandchildren, and why we have to keep faith in this important alliance. Before we hear from our next question, you, you mentioned France and Germany, and it just made me think a little bit about, you know, to name what it is, the far right of ascending, right? And, and whether it's Marie Le Pen in France or Germany with the, the party that aligns with uh, white supremacy, what message do we have for the people in the United States who have been struggling with issues of race, othering, xenophobia, as really the common denominator of a liberal democracy are the people who are most negatively impacted or the people who are already most negatively impacted by society. Yeah, this is, uh, it's a massive challenge. In some ways, it's, it's understanding the, the, the problem, diagnosing it. Sometimes it is about, as I said, it's, we have to work much more at the community level across Europe uh, as well as the US. But we have to focus as much on listening as problem solving, rather than mobilizing fear and grievance and anger and making that a substitute for improving lives, it, just improving citizens' lives, making sure they're heard. This is where I think democracy and a lot of the work that we do um, has become, you know, democracy promotion activities have become very stagnant. How do you talk to one another? Can you talk to one another? Are you so polarized you don't even talk to one another? How do we work with citizens' assemblies rather than, you know, working through different patterns of let's talk and let's get to work on solutions? Because the more we just keep pointing the finger at the other person who's not fixing the problem, we're not fixing the problem. And so I, I my view is, Let's, let's lift up voices, let's give people tools, democratic tools and leadership tools to fix problems. But we really, are we interested in the problem and solving it? Are we interested in using the problem for our own purposes to either achieve power or to, to limit the voices of others? That's, that's the decision and my view is I'm all about let's, let's get to the solutions and let's get to the, the community leaders that can start making things happen. And Cleveland is a perfect example of making things, the community leaders taking action and making things happen. Mr. Meisner. Good afternoon. My name is Joseph Meisner. 
I'm a former legal aid attorney and also Vietnam veteran. You mentioned earlier examples of light in Cleveland. You didn't mention the cultural gardens. Three miles, 40 different gardens, all dedicated to peace for over 100 years. I have some people here from Vietnam, and they're putting together their Vietnamese garden right now. There's also a Ukrainian garden there, and you mentioned the word victory quite often with the Ukraine. Where does that leave my fellow attorney, Vladimir Putin, and Russia in all of this vision that you have? Thank you. Well, I'm sorry I didn't mention the cultural garden. Thank you. <laughs> Highlight next trip. Uh, thank you. Well, you, you're, you're asking a really important question, and that is what has held back a lot of U.S. policy, quite frankly. It's been fear. Fear of what does a defeat for Vladimir Putin look like? Would he resort to nuclear weapons? Um, so in many ways, uh, Mr. Putin wants to make sure you are very afraid. Stay afraid, please. Don't think you can do this, and then you will give, you will acquiesce to, you know, Ukraine not having agency over its own territory. It is a tough question. My own, my own analytical sense is that Mr. Putin responds best to strength, not weakness and fear. When he is presented with strength, he backs off. So my example of this is Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Now for years, Mr. Putin and his foreign minister, Mr. Lavrov, and his defense minister, Shoigu, said that if Finland would ever decide, now again, they share an 880-kilometer border with Russia, ever decided to join NATO, they would use nuclear weapons. On the day that President Ninistu of Finland phoned Mr. Putin to inform him that Finland was seeking application to join NATO, what happened? Nothing. He, because he didn't, my, my analytical view was he was presented with a failure, and he didn't want to highlight that failure. And in fact, the, board, the Russian border troops that were on the Finnish border actually had been removed a year ago because they were needed to fight in Ukraine. So I don't want to overdo that analogy uh, because we do have to understand the risks of escalation. But the Ukrainians have hit the Kirsch Bridge twice. They have flown drones into, Ukraine, into Moscow. I mean, nothing, nothing. Um, so I think what we have to do is present Mr. Putin with clarity. I'm gonna use it again. Confidence and conviction. Clarity, this is our policy. You cross that policy and there will be ramifications. See, after 2015 and red lines, they don't believe us anymore fully. So we do have to be very clear. We cannot promise something that we are not fully prepared to deliver on. We have our other allies absolutely unified with us, not showing any weakness or division. Russia exploits any weakness and division. And we always offer that opportunity that we are prepared for a very different future if you're prepared for a very different future. The problem with that third part, we've offered that over and over and over and over and over again. Mr. Putin is making, making decisions that, that eliminate um, that. Um, I, I started my career at the State Department providing humanitarian assistance to St. Petersburg, Russia, when Vladimir Putin was deputy mayor. I feel like I'm having a full circle moment, I will tell you professionally. There was a very different future offered to Russia, and even Vladimir Putin, as a very new president, had suggested that he too one day wanted Russia to join NATO. We just have a very different Vladimir Putin today with a very different vision. He, we have to defeat this. We have to demonstrate that land grabs of neighbors are not acceptable or he's going to keep, he won't stop. So that's why I think there's clarity. I think we have to be careful, but I would argue to you the fear that we felt about escalation has not borne out in results yet, but what I worry about is cutting undersea cables between Finland and Estonia. If they would cut the undersea cables between the North Atlantic uh, to the US, I mean, there, there are some devastating economic implications they could do, but I do not believe that they would escalate because I don't think they could handle that escalation, and Vladimir Putin knows that.
an incredible achievement during a time where we were polarized, people were isolationist, as you said. What can we learn from those times, from President Truman, Senator Vandenberg, or, or just the times, to let us make these big achievements again in this country? Thank you. Oh, that's such a great question. Thank you so much. Uh, and, it's, and it's one I've spent a lot of time as we've talked about this, and which is why I, I do spend, and please forgive me, everyone, I spend way too much time talking about history. Uh, but sometimes our historical knowledge is not as wonderful as, as yours. Well, first of all, again, you have to begin with the basis of understanding this is in the US interest. It, 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 the, the, to do this is right for us. Uh, and I think, you know, as we were talking previously, I think why they started here in Cleveland with that conversation, and it has to be a conversation with the American people. You've, you know, look, this isn't Washington saying, yeah, we got this, here's the right answer. I think that's been discredited for a while. We need to come with good arguments and say, now let's, let's have this conversation. What are your questions? What are your concerns? Have we appropriately addressed them? What's at stake if this doesn't work? And I think that's what's been missing, quite frankly. What's at stake if this goes into an attritional war that doesn't end? Well, that means that's Russian victory. That's what that means is there. Um, it did take great bipartisanship. So you had to have two leaders that put the country first and the US national interest first, and then worked very hard, unclear if it would, it would help. But I also think it was also, you think about who led that effort. So, okay, this is deep dive history. I feel like it's like a trivia contest. Who's gonna win this one? Paul Hoffman, who was Paul Hoffman? The former CEO of Studebaker. Okay, maybe it didn't work out the best way, but it was a great automotive company at the time. It was putting the best private sector minds to task. It was organizing this to make sure we were successful. Victory, conviction, we have the tools, the means to do it. They gave it a time limit, it was four years, so this isn't like 20 years and we're not sure what happens. Quick, focused, business leading it, private sector, great American companies, technology, know-how, and they turned it around really quickly, and at the time, those dark storm clouds. I mean, 47, communist influence was likely to topple, at the time, the French and the Italian governments, barely fragile governments emerging from, from the Second World War. So it was an understanding we were going to lose all of our gains if we didn't do this. Great American know-how. Who's going to bet? I'm not going to ever bet against an American company going in there and doing something. Great economists. It was led, though, each of the countries, it was their plan. So this has to be Ukraine's recovery plan cannot be ours. We're a part of it. We're visioning it. And in the modern perspective, we have to make sure it's transparent, it's accountable, and that we have metrics. They measured. So Paul Hoffman had to go before Congress like once a month, are you hitting your, it was monitored, it was oversight, and it had results. I think we can take those lessons and apply them. We got to get, the bureaucracy is a little crazy. We got to shake that out. Unleash the private sector. Focus, get cities involved in building. Um, and as I said, I, Ukraine is hungry and ready to go. We've got to get our, our, we have to organize ourselves and understand um, that as we provide Ukraine, I call it the economic counteroffensive. The military counteroffensive is very important and we need security, but we plan and we build and they are building now because that day when victory comes, we have to secure the peace after the war is won. It's important we do this right now. Thank you, uh, Heather Conley and Joe Simperman, for joining us at the City Club today. Again, clarity, confidence, and conviction. We got it. We got it. Nailed it. Stuck the landing. Um, and a special thank you as well to Carrie Carpenter for all your work helping us organize this event today. We would like to also welcome guests at tables hosted by the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the German Marshall Fund Alumni Group, Global Cleveland, Huntington Bank, Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, Third Space Action Lab, and, um, and folks from the Ukrainian community as well. Thank you all for being with us today. On Thursday, we uh, will be hosting our first youth forum in our new home. This is a forum organized by local youth, local high school students um, and our, who are part of our City Club Youth Forum Council. And um, this month, 
Professor John Panza of Cuyahoga Community College and Librarian Rennie Greenfield of Hawkins School will talk about the impact of AI on education. You don't have to be a young person to come to that event, by the way, but the young people are organizing it for the entire community. On Friday, October 27th, we're celebrating our grand opening. Uh, Craig Hassel, President and CEO of Playhouse Square, will be with us talking about the intersection of free speech, the arts, and the spoken word. Immediately following the forum, you're invited to join the City Club for a free celebration, kind of an open house from 1 o'clock to 4 p.m. We're also doing a ribbon cutting at 10.30 in the morning if you want to be a part of that. Um, you're welcome to join us uh, for any of that. Also, um, coming up, you may have heard mention of, we have two European ambassadors on the calendar. Her Excellency Geraldine Byrne-Nason of Ireland is coming on the 10th of November, and Her Excellency Oksana Markarova is coming on the 17th of November. Um, so please consider joining us for that. I know both will be of interest to many of you. That brings us to the end of our forum today. Um, thank you once again to Heather Conley and Joe Simperman. If you're a current or former uh, MMF person, please join us on stage for a quick photo right following this. Um, thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.